This is Love Your Work. On this show, we meet people who have carved out success by their own definition. I'm David Cadavy, best-selling author and entrepreneur. This is one of the first episodes of the show, so to help us get the show off to a great start, can I ask you a favor? In this first few weeks of the show, we have the opportunity to be featured in the iTunes store in their new and noteworthy section. And this show is a bit of an experiment. I'm launching with a few episodes and seeing how it goes. But this first few weeks is critical. This is the one chance in the lifetime of this show to really bring in more listeners. And more listeners means I can put more of my energy into bringing you great guests with wisdom to share. But in order for that to happen, we need reviews on iTunes. Lots of them. They also have to be positive reviews, but that's, of course, up to you and the actual quality of this show. So can you please review this show on the iTunes store? If you loved it and you want to hear more, please give it five stars. Today's guest is someone who has really followed his curiosity to make interesting and really delightful things. Jonathan Wegner is the founder of TimeHop. TimeHop compiles all of your memories from your social media, email, and check-ins, and it sends your memories back to you. So just as an example, you might see the Instagram photo of the Chubby Bunny competition that you won six years ago at a friend's barbecue. Jonathan is really great at making things quirky and remarkable, and we talk about this in the interview, that if you're competing for attention, and you are, that's really the only way to get noticed, to make something remarkable. And he's made things that have gone viral multiple times, and besides Time Hop, we also talk a lot about the very strange little subway app that he built that supported him for a couple years before he built time hop there's some really great tips in here not only for creating something remarkable but also for hiring and managing people and for creating a pr frenzy here's the interview i'm here with uh jonathan wegner of of time hop and uh jonathan the last time i saw you i was on my book tour and I remember you, you reached out to me and you were like, hey, if you need a place to crash for a couple nights, um, you know, come on by. And so I did, which I very much appreciated. That was really awesome. Um, but I remember you had like a serial, you were running like an Airbnb out of your other bedroom. Um, and you had a serial collection of serials that you, that you like made your Airbnb tenants bring from around the world. To, to, you know, wherever they were coming from. So my biggest question today is, what was the strangest cereal that was in your cereal collection? The strangest cereal? Um, I had a lot of cereals that were from South Korea and other countries where I didn't even know what it said. I had no idea what the box said. Um, I'd say, I guess the strangest box was... Uh, I think it was called Knitting Nanas or something. It was like some British cereal where it was just like an old woman who was like knitting with gray hair and it was like very Mary Poppins or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was on the box. Yeah. And yeah. Did they have seaweed in some of the cereals that you say were like from Korea and I don't stuff? I think so. A lot of the, yeah. I mean, they're pretty much, I feel like they're all the same kind of ingredients or just like grains and variations kind of mixed together. Yeah. But there were some weird ones also uh, that were like, powdered wheat or something that you like add hot water to and it's like half oatmeal and half mush or something i, I don't think i even tried those yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just remember that being such like a, a a quirky fun 
idea, and you know, part of the the reason why I wanted to have you uh, on the podcast, and um, well, then also primarily because of, of Time Hop, which uh, can you tell people a little bit about what Time Hop is for those who aren't familiar? I think a lot of people are. Sure, Time Hop is an iPhone and an Android app, and it's a replay of your past. Uh, we like to say it's Throwback Thursday every day. It's an app that gathers all of your history off Facebook, Twitter, your camera roll, kind of, and replays what you did a year ago today, two years ago, three years, four years ago. Basically, this calendar day in history. So, for example, on Halloween, you'll see all of the pictures of Halloween over the past years. On Christmas, you'll see Christmas over the past years. On your birthday, you'll see all those photos and posts on Facebook over the past years, and then that we help you share and connect around the past. Yeah, so, so you kind of help people uh, remember their, their memories then, yep. that way. Yeah. Um, so how did, how did Time Hop come about? Uh, Time Hop was pr- about the 11th, uh, 11th Foursquare app that my co-founder and I built. Um, we were just really into hacking APIs and doing lots of quirky fun stuff on top of Foursquare's API. We had some really crazy little fun projects and um, Foursquare announced their first official hackathon in 2011 and we went there and kind of had this idea to build um, uh, well, the, product, the original product was called Foursquare in seven years ago, and the idea was kind of inspired by the Ghost of Mario Kart, where Mario Kart, you get to race your previous laps performance, yeah. and uh, we thought it'd be interesting if we created ghosts, so like David, you'd be friends with your ghost, David's ghost on Foursquare, and you'd see check-ins at lunchtime of your ghost having lunch as well a year ago, and your right. dinner, you'd see dinner, and we'd create these virtual beings running around the world, and uh, thought it'd be interesting to see what, what that felt like. And so it was just this hackathon project. So when you were sitting down and um, coming up with this idea of, of bringing back somebody's uh, memories or check-ins, things like that, did you, I mean, at this point, you've raised $14 million on, for this idea. This idea has grown into, for what this idea has grown into. Mm-hmm. And you have 18 million users, was that, yep, right? Did million. you have any idea six, that six it was going to be something like this? Six million a day checking the app. So about two percent of America reads Time Hop every single day. Wow. Um, we, I mean, definitely not when we when we started the idea, but as soon as we saw it and felt what we had created, we knew that we had something really powerful and interesting. Yeah. It took us a few weeks to a few months actually to, to decide to work on it full time, um, but it was pretty apparent once we kind of felt our own product and saw the feedback from our friends who were using it just how powerful reminders of the past were. And we, you know, some of it was anecdotal, some of it was data. We saw the open rates on the emails we were sending out. As the initial product started as an email. The open rates are 70, 80%. People were opening this thing every single day. People were forwarding it on, so we saw multiple IP addresses opening the email. Um, it was just kind of, uh, you know, it was hard to ignore. And it just kept growing and growing to the point that it started to cost us money to send all the emails we were sending. Yeah, and uh, that was kind of the breaking point where it was like, okay, should we turn this into a company? Should we shut it down? Should we try and like make money off of this? This is going to start to cost us, you know, a hundred dollars a month, twelve hundred dollars a year right. to run the side project. And we were basically unemployed. We were trying to start a different company at the time, um, so we had no income. We had no real salary other than Airbnb rent, Airbnb income, and. Uh, and then we realized that, you know, that's a sign that it's working and <laughs> we should double down on that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm curious, what, what was the other company that you were working on? At the, time? Uh, the other company was called Friendslist uh, and it was uh, 
it was a Craigslist competitor, and the idea was kind of uh, similar to how Meetup.com lets you know motivated individuals start and create meetups and organize. Mm -hmm. You have meetup organizers. Uh, we would let people build their own Craigslist and kind of play Craig, and it was based on uh, a few dozen of these like natural in the wild Craigslist that we had noticed, especially one in New York that's pretty popular called Janelle's List, where this woman Janelle has created her own community of 15,000 people yeah. around herself, and they're all friends and friends of friends of hers, finding roommates, giving, trading housing, buying, selling things, asking for favors, posting resumes, posting jobs. It's, oh, that's very cool. I didn't realize that. Actually, I, I started uh, a Facebook app like 2007 or something it was called through a friend hmm. and it was like a craigslist that used your social connections to you know find a find a roommate or get a job or sell your car or something like that something it still does still hasn't you know doesn't exist yet these, these yeah, either of these things but it's uh it's it's a tough one i mean it's one of those things that feels like it should exist and it's so academically perfect and then yeah in reality is really really tough so so I imagine, so when you were starting with this Foursquare and seven years ago, which is, you know, grew to be time hop, uh, I imagine you weren't going into that thinking that it was going to become what it is today. And, um, you know, so how do you think that you managed to give yourself the permission to do this thing that was not like, you know, you're working on this other company and, and, uh, it wasn't, didn't expect it to turn out to be something. Yeah, I mean, there's a few parts to the answer. One is that it was easy um, because we were so familiar with the Foursquare API already. We built a lot of other side projects on top of the Foursquare API, and, and I'll, I'll tell you a bit about some of those. Um, one of the one is that it was a one-day event, so it was a Saturday. It was kind of our vacation from working on our main job and our main company, the friends yeah. list thing. Um, and it was a one-time event where it was like, we, we don't want to miss Foursquare's hackathon. Like, this, 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 this is a momentous New York occasion. Like, one of the most successful companies at the time is throwing this hackathon. So yeah. Let's go there. Let's be there. Let's be part of this. Um, and then the fact that it was literally one day and eight hours of work also meant that, you know, it was tightly scoped to, uh, to eight hours of work. Right, and did you get everything done that you thought you were going to get done in that eight hours? Uh, yeah, I mean the product, the product definitely shifted in form. Like we never built the virtual ghosts running around the city idea. It just quickly became a daily email digest of your Foursquare check-ins from this day mm -hmm. last year. Um, I think we came in trying to build two projects in one day, and that didn't happen. But yeah, this this one did get finished, and um, I think a day or two later we started sending the emails from the service. So because you were able, you had that sort of constraint of only eight hours. And you, you had to scope it down from your original vision, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you just end up making like you end up making decisions really fast. You end up not worrying about a lot of things that you would otherwise worry about. For example, like we didn't launch with a terms of service and trademarks and copywriting and like get lawyers involved. We didn't even. I don't. I think we. Yeah, I think we bought it. I think we did buy a domain name the day of, but like certainly didn't worry about like the fact that our domain even had the word Foursquare and it was definitely infringing on right, Foursquare. Right, that, that was an issue, right? <laughs> you um, took care of it though. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a big issue and, and they didn't really mind, but if... Uh, it would have been an issue, you know, if you were to 
raised a bunch of money as that, or or did you raise money as Foursquare in four in seven years? Yeah, I mean, when we raised money, we didn't have a name. Like yeah. the working name was Anne seven years ago. We were just going to drop the Foursquare because we knew we wanted to be larger than Foursquare. Yeah. And Dennis, the Foursquare founder, was our first angel investor. Yeah. So Dennis and Naveen and Alex, the former head of product at Foursquare. Our, our first three angel investors and the same VCs are investors in yeah. time up. So. And I love that part of the story because um, I see this all the time with people who ask me entrepreneurial advice. They, they seem like they're um, sort of paralyzed and they have this big vision. And this, this is something I've struggled with myself. But they have this big vision of this thing they want to do, but then they start uh, looking at all the details that will go into it. And then as a result, they never even start. So I like that you, you, know, you were able to work with some constraints and concentrate on the things that were important and critical to making it really work. And you were able to get started. And now it's built up into this thing today. If someone were to look at it, they'd be like, oh, wow, I, I, could, I could never uh, you know, build this. But in, in fact, it's actually taken years to, to do. And, and it started with things like, you know, it had a, had another company's name in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the way I like to think about this is it's like uh, it's it's like there's a mountain in front of you, and you can you can try and like scale straight up the rock face, but you're probably not going to be able to you know rock climb up a rock face. Yeah. I mean, what you're really want, looking to do is just grab anything, grab find a handhold, and just start moving. And ideally, you want to find like a winding path and an actual like. A nice hike up the mountain and you know, make it approachable because to, to bite off more than you can chew and just try and scale a mountain on day one and build every part of your vision on day one is way too much and you need to just break it down and scope it down. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you don't climb Everest in a day. First, you, you, know, you get to base camp. I'm not sure how long it takes to get to base camp, but you know, you take some time and rest, but then there's these milestones along the way where at least you at least you get some sort of feedback where you feel like, oh, I accomplished something. You know, like I'm sure that after the end of this eight-hour hackathon, you had like a complete thing that people could use, right? Yeah, I mean, we had we had a complete thing people could use. We had like six thousand other ideas for improvements on it. Some our own, some user suggested, and then after a few weeks, we had data because we had usage data. We knew what people we knew that people were using it. We knew that yeah. people were telling friends. We started to understand like some of the basics of the business uh, and, and the product and just the dynamics of how it worked and uh, so to see some of the emergent properties we saw people forwarding on their emails and I was like well that can be a growth mechanism we saw people redoing things they did a year ago going yeah. back to the same restaurants and stuff we saw people asking for us we saw people like saying that oh that memory has an X, I don't want to see that again. Mm. So we kind of like saw all these, like, um, you know, just quickly learn all these emerging properties because you just dove in and you looked around. And yeah. Out, so. And if it had just been an eight-hour work session and you didn't have a finished product, and then you waited for another weekend where you could actually get it finished in, amongst everything you were already doing, then you might not have even gotten to the point where you'd had all this data to work with. Yeah. I mean, I love the expression, was it? Uh, uh, as good as the enemy of uh, perfect, perfect is perfect the enemy is the of, of don't let perf don't let perfect be the enemy of good. <laughs> so, I can't remember. Anyways, the point is like if you aim for perfection, you're you know, you're gonna spend all day getting there. And if you are forced to put something out, then uh, that's it's better to have those constraints and be forced to just 
ship something sooner and early. And, and I find the longer you wait to ship something, the higher the expectations feel like they are. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that spins out of control. That's that feeling of like, okay, it has, I need to spend more time on it because I've spent so much time on it already. It has to be really, really yeah, good. Yeah. And then it, you end up working on something for two years and never launching it. Can you recall any? It and it flops. Can you recall any parts of the process where, yeah, you don't want to let, want to let perfect be the enemy of the good, but where you found that, man, I actually, I really actually have to push through on this, um, and, and it can't be put into a small chunk, and I've got to slog through something to, to make this, um, to make this piece ship whether it's a piece of the product or something else in the, the business where it's like either this happens or it doesn't and it turns out that it takes a lot of time and effort to do this piece and I can't break it down too well. I mean, I guess the for us that is some of the back-end infrastructure tasks. Like yeah. Migrating some of our database stuff just takes so a while to figure out like how we're going to store all the data and serve our API endpoints and stuff like that. I mean, even even the even the TomHop iPhone app was two months, three months of work from yeah. idea to you know ninety days of work from with the team already built, with the team ready to go, from like idea to launch of an iPhone app was yeah. really, certainly not an eight-hour investment like the initial product was. But we went in with the learnings of that eight-hour product, and that mm-hmm. that momentum propels you through like the ninety days it takes to build an iPhone app yeah. because you're convinced that this will be the better experience in mobile. Yeah, you've learned enough, you have enough data to know that, okay, if I put in this two months, I already have enough going on with our web product, I think it might have been before, that I know that when we have this iPhone product, that suddenly it's going to be available to all these millions of people, and it will be worth the slog that we put through. You at least had something to fuel and give you that dopamine hit to keep you motivated through that slog. That accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And and the other, that that's like the glass hat. That's the glass hat full version of saying it, right? It, which is like, you use the data and the momentum to propel you through the hard work. Yeah. The other half of it, which is also we're talking about, is that what you're really doing is de-risking it, right? You're you're de-risk. Mm-hmm. You've used the data to, to. It's no longer a complete wild card of whether this 90-day investment of billion life mm-hmm. will work. You've de-risked that because you have real data going into it, and so yeah. you're making smarter smarter bets, even though they're sometimes bigger bets. Yeah, something I find myself doing, I know that uh, I sell like a course on how to learn design, and I spent all this time making like a member portal and everything, and and then, you know, eventually just scrapped that, and before I even had the, the, uh, the course done, just collected beta um, purchases from people, and then I had some. Like then, I was suddenly motivated to work on it because I knew that if I put in the work, one, I'd already made the commitment to these people that I was going to send them videos and s- stuff like that. So, um, it, it it can be useful to to I call it like the uh, like do the part of the project that's going to make you look dumb if you don't finish the rest of the project. Have you ever tried anything like that where you, you sort of made some sort of commitment where just, just for the sake of, of, uh, of putting the pressure on yourself to say like, oh gosh, now if I don't follow through, I'm going um, to have egg on my face? Mm, not, not too often, yeah. yeah. You might not be the type of person that uh, has trouble with that the same way that I do. Maybe you have other, other things that you try to hack in your own motivation. 
Yeah, I mean, when I get excited about something, I generally see it through, and I'm generally pretty good about cutting it to a really, really small scope at the beginning, at the up, at the upfront. So mm -hmm. it, it ships in some form, even if it's one one hundredth of it. Right, um, and yeah, so it makes me th think about. Uh, I remember talking to you about some of your other projects you worked on before TimeHop. Um, what were some of those projects that that you that you worked on before yeah, this those, big success? Those were awesome. Um, so basically, in two thousand nine, I set out to kind of reteach myself how to code. I hadn't coded in a few years. I was doing product work mostly. Um, well, I guess stepping back, um, in 2009, I launched an iPhone app called iPhone and Android and BlackBerry app called Exit Strategy. That is a subway app for neurotic New Yorkers to better ride the subway. It tells you the exact train and door to stand next to to hop off at the right stop at the station. Um, and that was one of those things that was just an idea that kind of popped into my mind. Like basically what, what happened was I, I found myself at the wrong end of a subway stop once, the complete wrong end of the station. There was no exit there and I needed mm -hmm. to walk the full length of the train. And I pulled out my iPhone. I had the iPhone for a few months at that point. Wrote down in the notepad like, you know, York Street F train back of the train or something like that. And I started adding to that notepad doc and it started becoming this like compilation of a few of the subway stops. And then, I was like, this should be an iPhone app. Why has no one made this an app? And I looked around, and no one made it an app because <laughs> it required collecting you know, all this data and visiting all these subway stations because the data didn't exist anywhere, or crowdsourcing or figuring out some kind of solution of getting 400-something subway stations data you know, uptown and downtown. So all in all, you're looking at over a 1,000 different subway platforms, data, information about where to stand on the platform. Um, and so, yeah, I, I ended up taking an unlimited metric card in three or four months of my life and just exploring every single stop in, in Manhattan and covering a lot of the city and launching Exit Strategy, which uh, was an iPhone, Android, and BlackBerry app. Uh, still is an iPhone and Android app. The BlackBerry platform kind of went away. Um, yeah, and it launched as a $2 app and went up to a $4 app and was able to live off of the income from that for two years. And it was just a really, really wow. good lesson. It was a really good like entrepreneurial one-on-one lesson and just how to go from idea to execution. Like it started as purely an idea. I'd never done an iPhone app. I'm not a good enough programmer to learn how to do that. Um, and after seven months, I had basically built an iPhone app, an Android app, a BlackBerry app, a website, a launch video, and done all the PR, marketing, press, like kind of incorporated the business, done like everything that needed to go into it, and figured out how to scale, just how to like scale that, so how to jump over that fence of like the challenges ahead of me. All right, so yeah, I remember I remember you talking to me about this uh, this app that you had, and it's so crazy. First of all, just if people if people aren't getting it, um, so if I am taking the subway to to Union Square, and I'm taking you know what the N train, mm -hmm. and so this will tell me which uh, car to get off. To get on, so that I will get to, the, I'll be at the right staircase. Yeah, exactly. To, It'll tell you to you get know, out earlier, all the way at the back of the train and the very last door. Yeah, that you will pull into the station, and the staircase you want will be right in front of you, and you'll be the first one out of the station. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so when you're running late, it saves you those two or three minutes. That's a world of difference. 
it's rush hour it saves you a lot more time than that because you're not stuck behind a million other people trying to get out of the station. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's, uh, and and do, I mean I don't know that seems like really that seems like really kind of crazy you know like. <laughs> Well, the level of—is that just what happens when you live in New York long yes, enough? Yes. Yes. That's the thing. About half of New Yorkers already do this. Like, there's a term for it called pre-walking. Oh, okay. And, you know, people typically learn it for their home and their work, and maybe one or two other stations they go to. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you're standing waiting for the train to come, and you have nothing else to do, so you just kind of like meander down the platform, and you start to approximately learn where you should stand. Yeah. And so, New Yorkers who think about this, yeah, and I'd say maybe 50% do. Uh, already, wow. already we're familiar with this, and so about you know when we launched, we just had people be like, oh my god, I thought I was the only one who did this. Like I can't believe there's a world, and like everyone yeah. does this, and um, yeah, and so that it, like picked up on this like really uh, neurotic little New Yorker thing that half the people do, and the other half are clueless. By the way, like the other half yeah. of New Yorkers Not are just like, what do you mean? Where do you get on the train? You get on the train when the tr you get on the train when on the train. And they've never thought that, like, oh, wow, like, that minute or two that I walk at the other end, I could have done that ahead of time and then mm -hmm. arrived at my destination two minutes earlier. So, um, yeah, it definitely hit a chord. I mean, we, we launched, um, we, we launched and got, well, I'll, I'll tell you the whole story. Um, I had lined up a New York Times exclusive with uh, Jenny Aitley in the City Room blog, and I didn't really think to ask the question when we were doing the interview. Uh, when is this going to come out? <laughs> it turns out it's going to come out at 6 in the morning. And I was mm. not awake at 6 in the morning. I think I woke up at like 10 or 11 that day because I was mm. staying up really late, getting everything ready for launch day, basically. So this like article comes out breaking the news that there's this new app that you know tells you where to stand on the subway. And um, by the time I woke up, I had like 15 voicemails. I had missed calls from Fox, wow. NBC, Wired Magazine, like every single public, every New York blog, every publication, national publications. Um, half of them, before I even was able to call them back, had already written about us, which was kind of crazy. Like, they just used the New York Times article, reformed it, cut it down, like, Wired, found, Wired wrote the entire article without talking to me, just based on the information on the yeah. website and, like, the videos and the B-roll footage that I had on the press section of the website. Um, and so that was insane. So literally for that entire week, we were on every single, uh, every single New York television station. Fox did a five-minute TV segment where they took cameras in the subways with my sister and I and had a television crew follow us around showing them the app and how to use the app and talking to us about the app. And New York One had us like on constant rotation every like 10 minutes. Um, New, or yeah, New York One. Um, New York Post did like a full page, almost looked like an advertisement, like a hand holding an iPhone with exit strategy running on it and an entire article about it. So we got so much press for it. Um, it was awesome. So what did you do in advance to uh, make it easier I mean, how much of that did you make happen, and how much of that was was preparation that you made to make it easier for those journalists to cover you, and then how much of it was just the power of the that idea? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all of the above. Like when I was deciding to work on the idea in the first place, a large reason of the large reason why I did was because I was confident this was a pressworthy story, and that this was something that was. It's just crazy enough to... It's to, crazy. It's notable. It's, it's notable. Yes, it stands yeah. out. It's, it's quirky. It's fun. People will talk about it. it, it um, it's not just going to get lost in the 100,000 other apps in the App Store at the time. And that was a really big concern. It's like, if I'm going to make an iPhone app, how is anyone going to find it? Now there's millions. But at the time, I think there was 100,000. 
Um, and it was like, well, people are going to find it because of press and because then they're going to hear about it and then they're going to tell friends. And so, so the, the seed of the idea felt like it was noteworthy and pressworthy and absurdist. And I love absurdist ideas. And this, that was like in my wheelhouse. Uh, and then everything else after that was just kind of a minor optimization. So like my sister, a week, a week into riding the subways, my sister got laid off from her advertising job. This is 2000, 2009. Um, kind of world was collapsing in New York, at least. And um, mm -hmm. she joined me and rode the subway with me for three months. And that was just icing on the cake, right? The story changes from like crazy man rides subway to brother sister team conquer the city. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like just like begging for press. Brother sister team spend three months underground with an unlimited MetroCard, having lunch in a different neighborhood every day. Um, and so just the more this, the more we could like make the story attractive, the more the easier it was. And then, um, I mean, and, and then after that, it's just a matter of like doing the journalist's job for them, right? Like thinking through what are all the press angles that they would want to hear, coming up with sick anecdotes and fun little stories. And, and, and then um, the nuts and bolts of it is like give them graphics, give them screenshots, give them uh, a graphic of a, of a hand holding an iPhone with the app yeah. running on it. And sure enough, New York Post took that graphic and made it a full page, to, right? Like if you can do the hard work for the journalists, all they have to do is drop in graphics and take some of the you know, brilliant quotes you've given them and like copy and paste it almost into an article, then you will get a lot more press because you've done that. So we had all this B-roll footage, we had all these screenshots kind of hosted online. We had a press section of the website with my phone number on it, so it was super easy to get in touch with me. And all of that just made it made it you know, smooth as What was all in the, in the B-roll footage that you provided? Um, the, the footage video, of the app being used? Yeah, app being used, um, photos of the stack of papers where we had literally you know, circled mm -hmm. on the schematic, the door and the train, and that later, take, later took that back and converted it into graphics that became the iPhone app. Um, pictures of us, pictures and videos of us just riding around the subway system. <laughs> Pictures wow. of my sister like walking off the train and exiting the path. So that was a huge like undertaking. Um, you, you you spent three months going to every subway station in the whole city, and the whole subway system of, of New York City, to to document all of this. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> when you say it that way, it does sound like a huge undertaking, but it actually didn't feel that way at all. Like it felt absolutely like a pleasure to explore a city I love and to uh, just work on something that I'm passionate about. Like it didn't feel like work. And there's also something, I mean, I, I don't know if this is typical, but I love monotonous things. I love cleaning my apartment. I love like washing dishes. I love folding laundry. I love, you know, riding the subways for hours at a time. Like, yeah. just, like your brain shuts, your brain doesn't need to be involved with what your hands are doing. And you just kind of like, Mm -hmm. It's very zen-like. There's something about just riding the train for a long time that was very zen. I think it's a, a really uh, valuable inclination for somebody, for anybody who creates things. I think to be, to enjoy those, the, the act of doing things that are sometimes some people think are monotonous, right? Yeah. You actually end up finishing stuff instead of maybe abandoning projects or things like yeah i mean it was it was also it was also easy and like it was a lot of time but it wasn't hard in the mm -hmm. sense of like i didn't have to learn 
rocket science. <laughs> I wasn't like learning some like heart surgery or something like really yeah. difficult. It wasn't academically hard. It wasn't even physically hard. It wasn't like I was running a marathon or anything. It was just uh, just a time commitment. And at the time, you didn't your your programming level was um, not enough. Kind of we're learning. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't do the iPhone app. Oh, okay. uh, I didn't do any of the programming on it, and I still don't to this day really program. Yeah. Um, so, I the, the story behind the iPhone app is that I I kind of scoped it out and um, did the wireframes and thought through the flows and here's how the app is going to work and look. You know, basically, as a product person, came up with kind of the UX and the flows and like the basic layout of the product. Mm -hmm. um, started talking to developers, and I had no idea where to find iPhone developers. Went on Craigslist, talked to some people, went to meetups, and just met random people. Um, and I quickly realized it was going to be really expensive to do the app in the way that we had originally conceived, which was a database-driven app that would like dynamically draw the door and the car onto a screen. Mm. And he was talking to this guy, and he's like, yeah, that part alone is going to take me about a week. He charges $125 an hour, $100 an hour, which is not, not that crazy, um, especially for you know, very high demand at the time, 2009, there weren't that many people who knew iPhone development. He was an ex-Apple guy. And I said, oh, wow, so 40, 50 hours of, a, of your time, you know, an extra week is going to be four to $5,000. I'm paying out of pocket for this. I'm unemployed. Yeah. There's no way I can do this. There's got, like, we got to just be, come up with a creative solution. And what creative solution we ended up coming up with was, what if it's not database driven? What if we literally just generate images for every subway station? We'll have a designer design the, the general design. We'll use Adobe Illustrator and we'll spin out thousands of images and we'll do the heavy lifting. And then all the app is is a gallery. It's a gallery viewer. It's, a, it's an app that like shows, literally shows you an image. And that simplification massively reduced the cost of the iPhone app to the point that the technical, like, well, the cost of it, but also just the technical complexity to the point that my old college roommate who's looking for a fun iPhone app to, you know, build as his first ever app hmm. um, was able to do it and teach himself nights and weekends how to do iPhone development and that was his first app. Uh, and it also ended up being really easy because then we could batch export those images to Android and Blackberry and so it just let us like spread the information in a way that we couldn't have if it was like a very mm -hmm. hard database coded application. So when it launched it was on all those platforms? Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was absurd. Um, the, the, the reason, uh, there's one word that there's one reason it was on all those platforms, which is paranoia. Uh -huh. um, I was completely, <laughs> looking back on it, it's absurd, but I was basically pretty, so in my own head, so excited about this idea that I was convinced that, you know, within a day of us launching on one platform, someone would copy us and do it on all the other platforms. Yeah. And that's people just steal the data because there's nothing defensible about it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, but, uh, no, no one ever did that. We launched an, we launched an iPhone, Android, Blackberry, and we even had a Kindle ebook. Because the kind of thinking at the yeah. time was like, we've done the heavy lifting, we've done the hard work of collecting it. Now we just have to distribute it. What are all the platforms where we can use, where we can distribute information and collect a little bit of money and get it to a lot of people? Like, will a million people pay ninety nine cents for this? Can we make a million dollars off of this? Uh, certainly, people will not pay, you know, ten, twenty, thirty dollars, but a lot of people will pay a little bit, little bit amount of money. And so, like. Kindle's that same model, right? You like make something and you print it. So the Kindle ebook version was the worst. The table of contents was the subway oh, line, wow. then it like linked to a sub table of contents. That was the station. Um, anyways, yeah. So, so looking back on it, knowing what you know with your experience with, say, uh, you know, Foursquare and seven years ago to Time Hop and, and 
um, you know, doing the sort of minimum viable product of it. Would would you do something differently with uh, with exit strategy? Would you have just launched with iPhone to start, or anything to make that success happen quicker, or um, change the ROI? <laughs> yeah, definitely would have launched with iPhone only. But I mean, in the end, it almost almost didn't matter. I mean, I loved. When we launched at the time, there was one Android phone. Mm -hmm. There was the G1. It was the very first Android phone. And the only people that really even had it were people who worked at Google, because they gave it as a holiday bonus in the previous year, in the previous holiday season. <laughs> so it wasn't even that widespread of a phone. And I basically borrowed a friend's Android phone for like six months because he wasn't using it. And as someone who loves new devices and technologies and new mobile and mobile in general, like it was a fantastic opportunity mm -hmm. to learn cross-platform development yeah. and to learn what the differences are between iPhone and Android and Blackberry and how the company's strategy is different. I just, so I just, I, I really, looking back on it financially, it didn't make any sense to build an iPhone app. It didn't pay for itself. The iPhone app sold, uh, for every dollar we made off the Blackberry app, we made $100 off the iPhone app yeah. in sales. Um, so there's lots of ways we could have cut corners, but at the end of the day, the entire project cost $3,000. Yeah. That's one of the things I'm most proud of. $3,000 to build an iPhone, Android, Blackberry app, incorporate a company, design the entire website, launch video, press strategy, all of that. Wow. Paying designers, paying, I mean, not paying ourselves, obviously. My sister a lot of hustle. A lot of hustle, but um, just like really it came down to scope. It was about cutting, cutting, cutting the tech scope and figuring out really hacky ways of, of accomplishing hard things in a super easy, low-cost way. Yeah. I think one of the things I see a lot of times with some entrepreneurs is, is that um, they see a company that's very successful, such as Timeful, and they kind of get intimidated by that, and they don't really know where to begin. Um, and it can be easy to ignore all the little sort of micro skills that, uh, you know, like coding is a skill. Like, it's pretty obvious that if you can't code, then you, you can't you can't code. Uh, obviously, you managed to get somebody to code for you. But then there's like all these other little micro skills in there that have made you, that you built up and stacked and prepared you for, uh, for this time hop uh, endeavor. Can you think of kind of what some of those micro skills might have been that you learned through exit strategy that, like you were just talking about platform, cross-platform development, were there things yeah. you learned? Yeah, um, one that comes to mind immediately is, is hiring. Like, um, we hired designers, and so learning how to interview and come up, write a contract even, like, um, I, guess, I guess a lot, one, one specific example comes to mind, which is that we, um, after we launched version one, which mostly included Manhattan and some of the other bros, we hired someone to kind of finish the job and like ride all the subway lines to the very ends, to the stations mm. that you know don't get much traffic. Uh, and we went on Craigslist and posted a job ad that was like, need someone to ride the subways. And that experience was just insane and fascinating. Mm -hmm. like how, do you, how do you hire someone to, to do that job? How do you screen a complete stranger off Craigslist? How do you know they're going to do the job right? How do you know they're not going to just fake the data? Yeah. How do you... So like when we finally found, when we finally found the guy we hired, um, I remember 
he spent the day doing it and he was like, cool, send me the payment. And I was like, send me the data. And he's like, no, send me the payment. And I was like, no, so <laughs> I just have this like lock. So like, you didn't make an escrow. How do you, yeah, you like, what did escrow? And um, what we ended up doing was meeting, <laughs> meeting at a Starbucks in Brooklyn and uh, I brought cash and he brought a laptop and a USB stick and it was the shadiest transaction you've ever seen. Um, but even that was like, well, how do I know the data is real? And so thinking through that problem, okay, you're hiring someone to do a job. How do you, how do you build QA into that process? Yeah. And so the like the solution we came up with was we we had them do I think twelve stations and two or three of them we had already done, but we knew that he didn't okay. have the app. He didn't have an iPhone. He wasn't yeah. going to like look at our answers. So we double checked. You know, some some portion of the work he did was overlapped with the the known answer. Yeah. We double checked our answers with his answers, and when they lined up, we we're like, okay, we can trust this guy, and we can trust that the rest of his work is probably good because. So you started with kind of like a test job of do these 12 stations, and some of those stations you already had, and then that way you were able to check his work and, yep. and verify it. And if the ones we already had didn't match his, and we knew he was just fabricating and trying to steal money, then you know, that'd be a giant red flag, and we wouldn't work together. Yeah. And um, so then from there, once we, once we had that, we had more trust, because he had met me, we shook hands, we exchanged information, so then you know, had him do like three days of riding, and met him again, and paid him cash, and we traded, and then he probably ended up doing a month or two himself finishing the rest, maybe not, maybe probably about a month of writing, uh, finishing the rest of like... And the, throughout the that extra month, were you s still giving him stations that you already had to make sure that, that the that trust point. was there? At that point, I trusted him. Wow, and he good. did, I mean, he did get a few things wrong, not definitely no ill will intent, but like he sometimes flipped things and users wrote in and we fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the end of the world either. We realized that even if the data is wrong, like users will discover it. And we'll go correct it. So. Yeah, I mean that's something that I hiring and managing people is definitely something that I personally struggle with. And uh, like you said, there are a few things that he got that maybe he got wrong or something. And I know for myself, like the first couple of times that happens, it's just like, oh man, what is what is with this person? But then you realize like you actually got something useful out of it, and that you, you know you can't. Nobody's perfect, sort of thing. Was that? A similar learning process for you, or how did that go for you? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely part of it. It's just learning, learning to scale yourself, and realizing that nothing's going to be perfect, and everything's a little bit sloppy, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and then it's hard to get them to care as much about it as you do, perhaps. Or oh yeah, I mean he had, you know, he I don't know, I think we had sent him the website of what we were doing because he initially was like, wait, are you guys terrorists? Like, what is, what is, <laughs> why do you want me to do this? I'm like, no, no, we're legit. It's like, pretty, he almost kind of shady. He almost pulled out at the last moment. And we were like, no, no, like, here's a New York Times article. Like, we are, we are for real. We are not. The, 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 also, just the timing was funny. I remember it was like the MTA went on, like, red alert for that week or something, or like the terrorist level, terrorist level oh. got raised. And so then he, like, read about that, and he was like, I, I can't do this, guys. And we were like, no, no, we're not terrorists. We're building a stupid, we're building a quirky iPhone app to tell people where to stand. You know, I gotta say, it, it kind of, it, maybe it's, it's, it might say a couple things about, good, good things about his personality that he actually was concerned enough that, that you guys might be terrorists that he wouldn't want to do this and that, you know, maybe it, that, that made him, uh, was telling that he was an upstanding person in some way that he actually cared in some way about what, what his work was doing. Yeah, it was, it was good to hear. But that's a, that's a hilarious story. So um, yeah, so there's that whole process of like, how do, you, how do you delegate, how do you hire, how do you ensure QA, and how do you manage someone? And 
just the, the circumstances of, of that. There's zero trust. You've never met the person in person, and you're literally dealing with an email address, and mm -hmm. he's like, send, you the, send me the money, and you're like, send, him, send, you, send me the data, and just like figure out how to conquer all that stuff. Uh, how did you really decide to test out that particular person, or were there other per people that you tested out, or did you have some sort of screening process? Uh, that, was, uh, that was a massive pain in the butt. I think we posted on Craigslist, and we found like 20 applicants, and we asked them to do like one station that we already knew as a test, mm -hmm. and like no one, half of them claimed they did it and then never would send us the data. Mm. It just, like Craigslist had the most flakiest people. Wow. Basically the funnel one from like 25 people claiming they were interested to like 15 claiming they were going to do it to like one doing it. Yeah. So we end up not even having a real choice. I, I've tried something on like Odesk or Upwork if I'm, if I'm oh, yeah. uh, hiring somebody bunch. for like really simple VA stuff where I will just have them do a very simple task, like go to this website and you know, tell me what image is here and put it in this spreadsheet and do it at this exact time on these dates and you know, hire 10 different people to do that. And pretty much almost no, none of them are going to actually do it to your exact specifications. And I find that to be uh, a useful way to get an idea of who's, reli who's reliable. Now that's not going to work for <laughs> for all types of positions, of course, but for yeah. some things. When we hired screen. when we hired when we were hiring for a time hop office manager, we did that. We did a sample task, and the task was plan. Um, what was it? It was plan an offsite trip for the team. And there was no more guidance than that. So mm. it tested their ability to understand what kinds of things would be fun. So like our team's not the type that would enjoy going to know, a Giants game or something, but they would be the type that would enjoy like paintball or mm -hmm. um, skiing or something like that. So just seeing the type of thing they came up with in the first place, but then seeing the level of logistics. Like, did they think through how are, how are 16 people going to get there? Are we going to take the subway? Are we going to take a car? Is it going to be rush hours? Uh, if it's an outdoor activity, did they think about the rain plans? Did they think about the backup? Did they think about the cost? Did they think about you know, transportation wow. home? Did they think about, like, what's the overall cost going to be? Did they look into van services? Did they actually call van services and get estimates? Like, how far down the rabbit hole did they go in thinking through, like, everything that's going to happen? Or did they literally just send us, like, we should go paintballing? And, and so then we had them, like, write the email to the team announcing this, right? And so then from that email, you get a feel for, like, do they have the good tone? Did, are they approachable? Is the tone, like, you will show up at this time, at this time? Or is it, like, y'all ready to shoot each other in the back? We're going to have a great time this Saturday. Like, show up at, like, this time and hop on it. And so you can get a, get a real feel for that just by doing a test task, like uh, a practice task. And it like sounds that. like that. I love that task because that covers so many different uh, Dimensions. Sort of personal dimensions or personality types, uh, personality dimensions or s skill dimensions, because there is, you know, the organizing of stuff and getting the details right. But then also, to, it takes some creativity to to come up with an outing and to to think about the people who are involved in it. Where it's like, you know, if you hired some VA in the Philippines who can get details perfect, but you ask them to do the same task, then they're they're going to they're going to fail on the creativity part of it or getting it right as far as um, the, the human. suggesting the right thing because they're from a different culture or, you know, or uh, for whatever variety of reasons. But um, 
when you do hiring or tests like that, do you have any pre-thought, preconceived notions about, well, it would be nice if, like, these are the thing, the skills that they have to get right. And then there, these are the other things that would be nice, but we realize that we're probably not going to find somebody that has all of this. Or do you typically find such exceptional people that they're really just Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it uh, definitely, there's a lot of subtlety in it and totally depends on the position, right? With developers, you'll find people that really good at the thing you need done and also have these secondary skills that are great or don't have the secondary skills. Um, and sometimes the projects that you give your team end up playing to those strengths. Like we realized one of our, um, one of our remote illustrators who draws the little Abe the dinosaur cartoon at the bottom of the Oh, I love that. I love that character. Yeah, so we recently realized like he's an amazing illustrator. Yeah. Sorry, not illustrator, amazing animator. And so we're starting to do some animated Abe stuff. And now we're yeah. starting to think like, what can, we, what can we do with this genius's animation skill? We can have him, we could have him do like a whole like Snapchat channel and like build out a nostalgia, I don't know. Just so you like build a little bit ideas. of what, what the company does around the talent that you have in some yeah. ways. It's like, wow, this person's really good at this. They really enjoy doing this. And so let's try doing doing some animation. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, the, the, the word resourceful comes to mind, right? Whether with exit strategy, it was about being resourceful because I wasn't a good enough coder to do it, so I had to figure out, like, how are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. And the answer ended up being, let's make it really simple and really programming light so that I can shoulder the majority of the work. And same with Team Time Hop. I mean, it's like the, your resources are the human resources in the room, and how do you use the tools in front of you and your skills and the skills of these people to, like, do something amazing? Yeah. And it might not be exactly the path that you had planned out because the skills don't match exactly, but you can find another route up the map. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, that I find myself doing because I'm, I'm a one-person company, but I'll have like these things that I feel like I really need to do, that I should do, or people tell me that I should do, and then I'll have, uh, I'll call it like a week of one, and I'll just do whatever I want for the whole week, and suddenly I find it very energizing and really cool things come out of it sometimes where just by having fun, I enjoy myself more, and then I actually end up with some uh, surprising results sometimes. Like, that got me hooked up with, uh, with Timeful, which then got bought by Google because I wrote a blog post during my week of want about you know, something that I had wanted to write about, not something that I felt like I should. You know, so it, it, it's a way to get play involved in yeah, what yeah. you're doing. Serendipity aspect is huge. Yeah, so um, and I know we're, we have maybe 10 or 12 more minutes. Um, so I want to ask, is there, is there anything that if you look back at on like when you were uh, young Jonathan Wegner, any, any sort of weird things that you did or idiosyncrasies where you look back on that and you look at what you're doing now and you realize like, oh, this, this, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, I had an urge to make things. Yeah. And in middle school and high school, that was looked at as really weird by my friends and colleagues, and now I realize that I know makes what you me mean. a maker. <laughs> yeah, and so like in middle school, the first thing I ever built, one of the first websites I built was a South Park website, a guide to downloading South Park episodes, and I didn't really make it for money, or there was no like goal, it was just to like get this information out about how to like, how other people can find 
bootleg South Park episodes online who maybe didn't have Comedy Central, which is the, the, the bucket I was in. Um, in high school, I built this really random website called StopTheSpin.org that's still around. It was a fake nonprofit organization dedicated to stopping the spin of the Earth. And it was just based on like, <laughs> some of the astronomy stuff we had done in physics class. And it was like a random, quirky idea. And I ended up printing t-shirts, and my friends were buying them. And the site, like six years later, really randomly made it to the top of Reddit and uh, like wow. went viral among like MIT nerds or something. It was super random. I got a call one day from a friend that's like, your site is the top of Unread. I'm like, that thing I made in high school? <laughs> what the heck? Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always just had an urge to create and the internet was my, was my, my forum, my audience. Yeah. Um, the audience is the billions of people on the planet. Um, and it's always been like the scale of the internet. But it's always just an urge to create in general. Like I love arts and crafts. I love painting things. Not painting things. I love like, yeah. I mean, I like painting things. I like, um, I just like making things. I used to love Legos and electronics kits and Capsella, these little capsules that you throw together. And um, even now, I like really just enjoy having ideas and bringing them into the world more than anything else. And uh, and that's not something everyone has. And if you have that urge, you gotta follow it and do something with it. And I, it's made me realize I really like other people who have that urge. And yeah. uh, it's really important to me that my friends are makers, that they're like interested in making something and creative people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to um, you know, other people thinking it's, it's a little strange. I remember I made my first website on AOL in like my little AOL my space in 1996. Slash tilde or whatever. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And then I remember, I mean, when I, even when I started uh, blogging on academy.net like in 2004, I remember, you know, friends or family kind of being like, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> like, well, because I want to. Like, why, why wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah, and you don't, you don't know it until 10 years later, but like all those little skills you picked up and things you learned, the judgment yeah. and like lessons and the ideas that maybe never even got built but were a side project end up coming back to coming back to you. Yeah, and it's amazing because uh, I, I think your subconscious in a way, for, for, for me, it's like my, I just have learned to trust my subconscious in a way. Like if I read my first blog post, it's like, I'm finally trying out this blog thing. I don't know why I'm doing this, but you know, maybe this, that, and the other thing. It's got a misspelling, it's total garbage. But if I look at it, it's like so prescient. You know, my subconscious knew things that I could have never planned. Yeah, I found my first website had a, a section called links where it's websites I enjoyed. One of the websites was Google. <laughs> it's like the best search engine as far as I can tell. It's pretty good. It was a pretty good search engine. It's pretty good. Uh, all right, so I uh, so it sounds like you're a very productive, organized person. Um, is there a structure, not so much to your day, but to your week? Um, not really. Um, or actually, to your day, if there is. Also, not really. I, I try. Actually, try and do as little as possible. As little as little. I try and outsource as much of what I mm -hmm. need done as possible. I'm really into. I have a virtual assistant. I lean heavily on. I use a service in New York called Alfred that comes to my apartment twice a week and buys my groceries and cleans up things and. Oh wow! And like does all sorts of just saves me a lot of time. I. 
delegate things a lot internally in the company. I try not to take on tasks that anyone else could do and really save my energy and my focus for the things that are uniquely my skills, which are, or the things that I really love doing, which are thinking about product, creating product and yeah. creating strategies and visions and executions. Yeah, I think my highest ROI um, delegation has been just having a meal delivery service mm-hmm. that brings me meals a couple times a week and then I just don't have to think about cooking. Um, yeah, that's awesome. It's like the easiest thing to do, but uh, saves a lot of cognitive energy. Yeah, um, I mean, like the office we're sitting in now is, uh, you know, we just moved in on Monday of this week, earlier this week, and uh, the first three offices, this is our fourth office, uh, the first three I found myself, I sourced, I literally went there, I worked with the brokers, I figured, negotiated leases, mm-hmm. and then like, built out the space, went to Ikea, got furniture. Oh, wow. and like, um, the last space, I didn't do it. Last space, I found the space, but didn't build it out. In this space, I didn't do anything. And it's been awesome. That's just having nice. Trusting someone else on my team to hunt for office space, find office space, negotiate a lease, sign the lease, figure out, our, figure out moving all of our stuff from our old office to this office, and just literally walked in the door on Monday, and it was like, yeah. this is our new office. I didn't even have to work over the weekends. Like They took care of it over the weekend. Yeah. So I love that. Um, it, I think that uh, what, what people decide to do uh, is heavily guided by their values. So if you were to pick like three things that you think that you value that guide your decision making and, and prioritization in your life, what would you say that those things are? Um, creativity, um, absurdism, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Oh, those are two. Those are two things. That's good. Yeah, maybe maybe the the question needs to be one or two. But creativity and absurdism. I think that uh, you've expressed those values pretty pretty well with uh, you know what you're what you're doing with with time hop and what you did with uh, with exit strategy as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think and I think most people. Spin. Yeah, I mean, it's most people. Um, most people's ideas get lost in the noise, and it's if you if you have a knack for creating ideas that stand out and are absurdist and get noticed by press and by users and friends tell friends about because they're just the idea or the execution or there's a like, there's something distinctly human about it. there's like a marketing slant to it, and I think about that a lot with like all successful products like SoulCycle and. I don't know, sweet green and any of the yeah. like restaurant chains and exercise crazes, um, even like the shake weight or like the clapper. Like what a brilliant little concept! Like it's someone like clapping, yeah. with enough electronic experience to know that you can like detect sound and turn on the circuit was like we're gonna market this thing as the clapper and like yeah. But they didn't probably have data. It was just based on like a hunch that like humans would like connect with this idea of like clapping the turn on your lamp. And it's such yeah. an absurdist, beautiful concept. It sort of like, tickles the subconscious in a way. Yeah, it's got like a uh, yeah. Tickles is a great word. There's like there's there's a there's a joy or something in the mm-hmm. in those types of products that um, that is like a beautiful human connection. Like it. I think a lot of people think tech products are like science, right? It's, you can A-B test your way to success. You can just like, mm-hmm. 
you know, it will work for these academic reasons because like the purported five forces, blah, blah, blah. But like, at the end of the day, it's an art more than a science. Yeah. Especially if you're starting something. You're making something, it's by human for another human. Like you're making a piece of art. Um, and, all, and I think of all tech products is that. And I just think, how can I make the most beautiful, attractive, wildly bizarre thing that will make someone smile? Yeah. And if it doesn't fit those criteria, then it's probably not worth making because no one's ever going to find it. I, I love the, uh, you know, uh, I love the part towards the end of the book, uh, The Lean Startup, which I think is a really great book, but some people have kind of taken it and ran with it in places that I don't think the author ever intended, but where he sort of warns that we can't make this into some pseudoscience that's based around um, pivots and MVPs and and uh, you still need entrepreneurial vision to to uh, to move things forward. And so I think that that's a little bit of what you're touching on there with that there has to be this, this brain-tickling thing going on. It has to be remarkable. Yeah. I guess I saw a fantastic talk last week from the guy who invented Geek Squad, the like, Volkswagen Beetle yeah, Best yeah. Buy repair thing before it was acquired by Best Buy. And the title of the talk I thought was brilliant. It was called um, Advertising is the Cost of Not Being Remarkable. Advertising is, is, the t is your yes. tax on not being remarkable or something like that. Yeah. And it's totally true. Like If your brand doesn't stand out and be memorable and people tell people and love your service, then you have to buy users, and that sucks. And if you can make a product that just spreads because it's so amazing, then that's that's the holy grail. Yeah. Um, so, what's the last book you read that changed the way that you saw something? I'm trying to get a book recommendation out of you. I don't read very often. Read very often. <laughs> like Lean Startup, I got halfway through, uh, maybe a third <laughs> of the way through. Like I, I, I start a lot of books and I finish very few books. I think um, that's fine. The last book I'd say is The One Minute Manager, and specifically, I think, the sequel to it or something that's called The One Minute, One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey, Meets Monkeys or something like that. Yeah. And it's just a lot about delegation and a lot about... I had one section that summed up me perfectly, which is if you come to me, if you're an employer or someone, you come to me with something, my first instinct is, oh, I can do that. I can help that. Let me, let me, let me take yeah. care of that for you because I'm a doer and I like doing things and I'm pride myself on being capable of doing things. And that's almost exactly the run instinct yeah. when you're running an org and you're trying to scale something. The answer is how do I keep the, how do I not let the monkey jump on my back and how do I actually keep the monkey on your shoulders but assist mm -hmm. you and level you up and like inspire you to create. And so that really changed, that made me stop adding things to my to-do list when people came to yeah. me with questions that I would no longer let me think about that and get back to you. Because no. that puts more work on me and I, let me, Let's talk through it like Socratically, and yeah. So that book kind of changed my management style in a way that probably makes more work for the <laughs> probably makes people who report to me hate me a bit more because I'm not doing well, their work. That's the, right? the whole idea, right? <laughs> You're supposed to yeah. you, you hire them to do, to do the work, and uh, you have to steer the ship. Yeah. Um, that is the that is the uh, the feedback sandwich in it, doesn't it? One minute manager. Yes. Something like that. Yes, I haven't used that too much, but it also has a yeah. It's a little predictable or I, I think I've been given the feedback sandwich before and kind of been like I know what you're doing <laughs> yeah I think that's like usually you uh, you usually you do this thing right but this time you didn't and is that how the feedback sandwich works yeah I mean if you generally keep a good close enough rapport with the person you don't even need the bread right you just right. give them the 
criticisms and you yeah. have a good enough relationship that it comes, they know you're not attacking them and it comes from a place of caring because you're showing the rest 99% of the time that you care about them. Yeah. And the 1% where you need to tell them something that feels like you're dinging them, it's not seen that way. Right. So. Yeah. Um, and what is the, uh, you know, f uh, what is the biggest compromise that you've had to make so far to get where you're at? Anything that you, you know, sort of resisted but you, you saw that there would be a, a gain for it. Um, what do you mean a gain? A, a gain. A gain. Like, like you know, a compromise that you had to make to uh, get where you are. Do you feel like you've compromi compromised nothing? Nothing, nothing comes to mind. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, That's good. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. I mean, I'm kind of doing exactly what I want to be doing. I'm building tech products that reach millions of users in New York City, the yeah. best city in the country, in my opinion, if not the world. And um, it's a pretty great time. So great. Not too much. I, I don't really regret much and don't feel like I've made many compromises. And uh, the, the last thing, do you have any uh, you know, parting words of wisdom or anything that you would, would you like to say to people who are listening? Um, I think for creative I think people underestimate the importance of playing with tools um, and just like then Legos always come to mind when you're mm -hmm. if you ask someone to just create something and you literally say create something with no Legos they're just gonna be like, what do you mean like create something mm -hmm. but then if you give them Legos they're gonna start building houses and trucks and cars and like elephants and I don't know like you Anytime you give someone tools, there's like natural constraints and flows and designs in those tools that let you create things. And it's the combination of like a human brain and tools that result in really interesting, mm -hmm. really beautiful, amazing things. And I think um, for me, I just get in this incredible creative flow anytime I sit down with a new set of tools, whether it's like a new API and I'm like interested in playing with it or whether it's physically like Legos or something like Arduino where it's like hardware electronics. Um, just this week, we installed Philips Hue lights in the ceiling here, and um, one of our engineers, who's very much this mindset, like you give him tools, and he just finds a thousand uses for them. Mm. Um, as soon as we've installed the lights, he was like, "There's an API." Oh, no. <laughs> By the end of the day, he connected our chat room to the lights. So if you type "red alert" in our chat room now, all the lights start flashing red and white, and it's amazing. Um, and he now has like 7,000 other ideas of things he wants to do with the lights where, you know, my co-founder's phone, when it gets near, is going to activate an IP consensor that's going to make a song come on Sonos and play the lights. And he's going to like have an individual welcome light show for everyone in the yeah. office. And like, ideas just spin into more and more ideas that are, um, that are pretty awesome. Yeah, the theme here seems to be kind of playing and then, you know, of course, taking the successes and, and making something out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you start doing is not the thing you end up doing and if you never start like once you start playing just more and more paths and doors open up and you like keep walking yeah. further down you just realize that this can be that and this can be that and if i add this onto it and like the creativity comes from that process it doesn't come from brainstorming ideas up front it comes from working in the idea and working on an idea and just more and more ideas ideas breed ideas i guess is yeah. my takeaway all right well I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of people out there who are creating and uh, you know looking either, whether they're just getting started or they're they're in the middle of something right now. 
Uh, so thanks so much for, for sitting down with me and having this conversation. Cool. Jonathan Wegner of TimeHop. This is awesome. This Thank was you. great. Thank you. So there we have it. Before I go, I got to ask, do you like books? If you do, I'd love to send you my book recommendations. About 90% of them will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to cadavy.net slash reading and make sure you put one more trailing slash on the end of that URL. Sign up and you'll get my first set of recommendations right away. You'll be supporting the show if you buy any of those books through the links in the email. This has been Love Your Work and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is CNU, performed by the album Leaf, courtesy of Sub Pop Records. Love Your Work is a production of Academy Inc.